I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, it's toward the end of the Bible. And this morning, this morning we're going to uh, return to our sermon series titled Elect Exiles, in which we're studying the entirety of 1 Peter, and it's directed to Christians who are suffering. It's directed to Christians who are going to suffer in the coming months and years, and Peter is preparing them for this. And now we get into the very heart of Peter addressing the suffering Christian. And so for the next five or six weeks, we're going to be looking at suffering and witness, suffering and salvation, suffering and holiness, suffering and serving, suffering and glory. And so it really should be a wonderful time of preparation for us for those of us who are not suffering, and for those of us who are, it should be a really equipping time for you and your life uh, as a Christian. Now, one of the main truths that Peter is seeking to drive home into our hearts is that suffering is an opportunity to confront evil with good, cursing with blessing, hatred with love, and hospitality, um, or confront animosity with hospitality. And so I want you to see this in verses 13 to 17. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3, Peter writes, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? The ESV says, Who is he who will harm you if you become zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a man by the name of Ronnie Smith, right? Ronnie Smith uh, was a missionary to Libya, and uh, he was gunned down on the streets while he was on a a morning jog by uh, what uh, appears to be uh, Islamic uh, terrorists. And World Magazine wrote an article a couple of days after it happened, and I want to read that article to you. And I want you to pay close attention to the kind of characteristics that you hear in this this article that describe Ronnie Smith and his family that seem to mirror, that seem to reflect what we just read about in verses 13 to 16, okay? Just just soak, soak in this article. It's called A Life Laid Down. Hours after assailants gunned down American teacher Ronnie Smith during his morning jog near the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya on Thursday... Grieving friends on opposite sides of the globe remembered Smith, 33, as a devoted teacher, family man, and Christian. No one immediately claimed responsibility for Smith's murder, but Islamic militants had called for the kidnapping of U.S. citizens in Libya in October. Hospital officials said that the teacher had been shot multiple times. Smith held a master's degree in chemistry from the University of Texas at Austin, and had been teaching chemistry at the International School Benghazi for 18 months. 
His wife, Anita, and their young son had returned to the United States several weeks ago for Christmas break. Smith stayed behind to help his students through midterm exams and had planned to join his family in a few days. Leaders at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas, confirmed Smith was a longtime member. A statement on the Austin Stone website said Smith had served on the church's staff before moving to Libya. Quote, Ronnie and his family moved to Benghazi to teach high school chemistry and to be a blessing to the Libyan people. Ronnie's greatest desire was for peace and prosperity in Libya and for the people of Libya to have the joy of knowing God through Jesus Christ. End quote. Back in Benghazi, Smith's students described him as a teacher who inspired and cared about them. Quote, he was the most amazing person more like a best friend or a family member, Yomna Zintani, 18 years old, told NBC. After everything that happened in Libya, we were losing hope, and he was the only one who was supporting us, motivating us. He dedicated so much of his time for all his students. He chose to come here and help us and risk his life. Other students memorialized Smith on Twitter. He was the best teacher I ever had. Always ready to work, always in a good mood, wrote one. Another student tweeted that Smith baked me two batches of peanut butter cookies on my birthday and sang happy birthday in Arabic. <laughs> As Smith's family and friends prepare for his funeral, Smith's words on his church profile offer a reminder of his desire. This is what he wrote. We strive for and treasure Christ above all things. I don't want the church to be about people, programs, or numbers, but rather a body that reaches out to the hurting and that speaks the truth of the gospel uncompromisingly into people's lives. End quote. So Ronnie Smith is not the only one who is giving testimony about the the great treasure and joy of knowing Christ. His wife was able to do so once uh, he was killed. So the life of Ronnie Smith was remarkable, I think even perplexing to many. But then the response of Anita to this. Anderson Cooper here on CNN for the whole world to see. Anderson Cooper seems to be perplexed. Why? Why? Well, I say it's because both Ronnie and Anita had set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in their hearts. That the treasure of knowing Christ is greater than the treasure of having the acceptance of the world. And the joy of knowing Him is worth sharing to people who do have wrath upon their shoulders unless they come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, the big idea this morning is that Peter teaches us three life principles when it comes to living the Christian life in the midst of people who don't love Jesus, who don't appreciate Jesus. And so I want to give those to you right now. I think they'll be on the screen. Three life, life principles, maybe they won't. I'll give them to you so I don't want you guessing. Embrace your suffering as a blessing. Prepare yourself for witness. And then prove your witness by your way of life. All right, embrace your suffering as a blessing. 
Prepare yourself for witness and prove your witness by your way of life. I would really want Ronnie and Anita's testimony to kind of hang over this this sermon and this message so that we can see and experience the kind of thing that Peter is describing. So let's start with number one, embrace your suffering as a blessing. He says, who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Let's just stop for a moment and let's just observe this question, all right? Because I think what, what Peter is doing is he's making a connection between verses 8 through 12 and verses 13 to 17. Because in 8 to 12, he's saying, listen, I want you to love each other. I want you to love the world. I want you to to speak good and do good because you'll experience what is good. You will live the good life if you love each other. I want you to, to love life and see good days. And by loving each other and loving the world, then you will see good days. And then he takes that word good and starts off in verse 13. And he says, who's going to harm you if you become followers of what is good? He makes that connection there. Now, Peter is making two points right here in this question. It's not so much a question as it is a statement. All right. And so the kind of the two points, the two statements that he are making is this, is that if you're zealous for what's good, then you'll often enjoy the favor of the world. If you're zealous for what's good, you'll often enjoy the favor of the world. And then the second point that he's making is if you're zealous for what's good, you'll always enjoy the protection of God. Always. Okay? Now let's just talk about those two things for just a couple minutes here. Um, It's not a universal principle. It's not something that Peter is putting a a stamp of guarantee on saying that you're never going to be physically harmed. You're always going to be fully accepted if you're a Christian in the world that's not what he's saying but i think what he's saying is if you love what's good if you speak what's good if you do good things if you stand for what is good people are going to want to be around you like if you have a boss or a supervisor or if you're a slave and you've got a master but you just you bear the fruit of the spirit you've got love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and 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 you're an ephesians 4 29 christian you don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen and if you're a first corinthians 10 31 it says whether you eat or drink do it all to the glory of god and so you just let your life be an expression of everything that is good i don't know about you but most people in the world want to be around those kind of people they, they want that kind of person on their team because it makes their atmosphere better. It makes their work environment better. It makes their family better. They may hate your Jesus, but they like the good things that you bring to the table. Now, that's the kind of the minor point. The bigger point is the fact that if you're zealous for what's good, then you'll always enjoy the protection of God. You always will. Now, what does that mean? Take... Uh, if you would hold your uh, place in First Peter, I'd like you to turn back to the Old Testament in Psalm 34. Because Peter has been focusing, he's been meditating on Psalm 34 over the last couple, couple of chapters. And he's, this message here, this, this question is really a reflection of his meditation from Psalm 34. And I just want you to soak this psalm in to get the understanding of where Peter is coming from when he says, who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? All right, that's a summation of Psalm 34. So David says, 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. There's no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. In other words, if you're zealous for what's good, then you'll enjoy the favor of God. Come, children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Who's the man who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Y'all recognize that statement right there? Yeah, because he just, he just used it in verses 8 through 12. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. To note that David is not talking about he's going to save your life every time. He's going to rescue your body every time. Somehow you're going to be able to finagle out of the caves and out of, uh, and out of the mountains like David did on numerous occasions. That's not the idea because look at what David says at the end of this psalm. He's talking about ultimate protection. He's talking about spiritual protection. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Afflictions. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to go through suffering. But he says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. Now they will be condemned. They will suffer eternally. But look at what he says. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in him will be condemned. I think it was John Piper who said at the conference this week, that the worst anybody can do to you is kill you. That's the worst thing that can happen. Listen, Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. So listen, if you let me live, I'm going to preach Christ and love Christ and enjoy Christ, and he's going to be the supremacy of my heart. But if you kill me, I get to be with Christ. I get to see him as he is. I get to reflect his glory and his holiness. And I'll live forever and ever with him and by his side. And so that's what Paul is saying. And it really reflects Romans 8. You guys, uh, some of y'all probably memorized the passage that says, What shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Let me tell you something, guys. If you love Jesus, I mean, if you stand for Jesus like what you were talking about, Tori then there are going to be a lot of people who are against you. They're not going to like you. But when it comes to sovereign, supreme protection, redemption, and eternal life, nobody can touch you. Nobody. And that is Paul's point, and that is Peter's point in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And so, turn back to 1 Peter. Turn back to 1 Peter and we'll be there the rest of our time. As you're turning there, Psalm 118 sums it up really well. He says, the Lord's on my side. I won't fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Listen, it was like, uh, who was it? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, listen, we're, we're not going to bow down and worship your image of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, because we worship the Lord. But, uh, and so he's going to save us if you throw us into this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down because we know that he is our protector. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. All right, so look back down at uh, chapter 3, verse 13. I need to get there myself. And so he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Now, sometimes preachers and teachers and Sunday school leaders kind of summarize passage of scripture into quippy statements into principles so that they're easier to learn but peter gives us a statement right here that is needs no needs no addition it needs no help it needs no quippiness he says listen if you suffer for righteousness sake you're blessed we need to embrace that y'all we need to embrace that understanding let me let me say it a way that you you might uh, might ring with you a little bit more Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. All right? Sometimes it's the very indication of blessing. So when Jesus says, blessed are you, blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, you're blessed. That word blessed means happy. It means delighted. It means to be in a state of blessing from the Lord. Because great is your reward in heaven. In John 16, he says, These things I've warned you, all right, that in me you have peace, but in this world you will have trouble. All right, it's a promise. All right, but you can have peace in Christ. And then Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. He said, I rejoice in my, in my uh, infirmities and in my weaknesses, all right, because I want Christ to be magnified in me. All right, I want God's strength to be seen in me. The message of 2 Corinthians is this, is that God's strength is magnified in my weakness. And His strength will be magnified in your weakness if you allow Him to, if you allow it to. So I'm weak, God. I'm suffering. I'm struggling. I'm emotional. I don't know what to do. What God says is, just come to me and let me provide you with the strength because I'm going to magnify myself a lot better through your weakness than than through you asserting your strength. All right, so I think we want to ask the question, how is suffering for righteousness a blessing? How is it a blessing? And if you're taking notes, I want you to just write the answers down here because I think it's worth meditating on in the coming days. First of all, it's an honor. It's an honor. You're being counted worthy to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1.24 that I rejoice because I can fill up the sufferings of Jesus Christ. In other words, they hated Jesus, and so they persecuted him, and they murdered him. But it wasn't enough. And so they see the followers of Jesus, and so they persecute us and make us suffer, and it's an honor for us to do so. Listen, do you realize how much of a privilege it is to be able to be seen as a follower of Jesus? To see that we stand for the same things that he stood for? That that we live in a kind of way that he lived, and they treat us the same way that they treated him? That's an honor. That is a privilege. 
Now, the second reason that suffering for righteousness is a blessing is because it's an opportunity for evangelism. You have the opportunity to magnify the sufficiency and worth of Jesus Christ. You're telling me that, uh, that those students that Ronnie Smith had who were blessed by his love for them aren't in some way impacted for the gospel by his life and his death? You're going to tell me that Anderson Cooper was not visibly impacted by the testimony of Anita Smith as he seemed to be perplexed by the kind of immediate love that he could have for Ronnie's murderers? It's an opportunity for evangelism. Third, it's an opportunity for edification. You can show your brothers and sisters in Christ that he is, in fact, sufficient, that he does meet your needs and he does bring you joy in the midst of suffering. Listen, I have been tremendously impacted in my own Christian life by watching my brothers and sisters suffer for Christ. Whether it be suffer physically, suffer emotionally, suffer spiritually, I, I've, I've been impacted by that. And I think that we all have that opportunity to impact one another. So edification. And then sanctification. All right? Suffering makes you more holy if you allow it to. If you say, you know what, God, I don't like my circumstances. I'm in pain. I don't feel good. I don't like the way Peter, people are treating me. All right? However, however, I, I would echo what I heard. I think it was uh, someone this week who said, I never knew Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. You ever felt like in your life where everybody's abandoned you, everyone is against you, you're struggling, and Jesus has been the one who's come in and provided the kind of joy, the kind of peace, the kind of comfort that you needed? Well, that's exactly what suffering can do. And then let me give you one more. Suffering's an opportunity for intimacy with Christ. By intimacy, I mean knowledge. I mean fellowship. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. There's nothing Paul would say that I want more than to know Jesus better and to enjoy a relationship with him better than what I already do. And he knows that that's going to happen through the fellowship of his sufferings. That's how suffering for righteousness can be a blessing. And I don't think we'll have time to expound much on this last uh, phrase that he makes in verse 13, um, or he says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I mean, one thing that you want to know here is that he's quoting Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13. And what Isaiah was saying is the same thing that Peter is saying is this, y'all. We have an innate sinful tendency to fear man more than God. We fear unpopularity among our peers we fear hatred and animosity among our co-workers we fear isolation from even family members who don't love jesus the way that jesus has gripped our hearts and we love him we fear these things and peter's saying don't fear man fear god have a reverential awe for the majesty of god love him and realize that your identity and your rest and your comfort is all wrapped up him and not in them right you want to love them and care for them but you never want to be the recipient of of uh cowering down to their opinion more than god's opinion and 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 receiving their animosity rather than god's comfort their hatred rather than god's love you never do that fear god more than man all right and so he's saying embrace your embrace your suffering as a blessing now y'all 
Redeemer Church of Oxford, Alabama has not begin to, begun to experience suffering in the way that Ronnie Smith and Anita have and the way that a lot of Christians across the world have. But I tell you what, as each day goes by and each page on the calendar flips, I really believe that we will. I'm confident of that. And so Peter would say, prepare yourself for suffering by loving Jesus and delighting in him and being ready to go when it happens, okay? All right, so the second um, thing, principle that I want you to see is uh, prepare yourself for witness. Prepare yourself for witness. Now, he gives us four ways. You note takers, here are the four ways. Um, he says, prepare your heart, prepare your life, prepare your attitude. And uh, what's the last one that he says? He says, uh, prepare your speech. All right? Prepare your heart, prepare your life, prepare your attitude, and prepare your speech. He first says, sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. Sanctify him. Now, the reality is, is that first, God sanctifies us, right? He makes us more holy. He sets us apart for himself and he says, I want you to be separate from the world. I want you to look differently, differently than they do. I want you to sound differently than they do. I want you to reflect the righteous character that I myself have. All right? But then Peter turns it around and he says, I want you to sanctify the Lord. And he's not saying, I want you to make the Lord more holy. I want you to separate the Lord more. No. He's saying, I want you to recognize Jesus' supremacy, and I want you to set aside his supremacy in your heart as the master and king of the universe that he really is. All right? And so that's what he's essentially saying. Now, how do you do that? You pray to him. You meditate on his character and his ways. You begin to look at him in the scriptures. You begin to confess your sin before him. You begin to find your delight in him. You begin to turn away from the worldly pleasures that bring you comfort and peace and identity. And you say, I want my comfort and peace and identity to be found in you, Jesus. I, I want to sanctify you fully in my heart. Now, if we've got those pictures, if you could put the first picture up, Isaiah, um, if you've got access to that. All right, so this is the way that we are tempted to have our hearts. We've got our job and our family and our church and our hobbies, and we've got Jesus in our heart. So that if someone were to ask you the question, is Jesus in your heart? You say, absolutely, he's in my heart. Yeah, he's definitely a big part of my life. And if you look at this, he obviously is a big part, at least one-fourth or one-fifth, Right? And so it's like, wow, Jesus, yeah, I love Jesus. And so I'm a Jesus guy. All right, but this is what happens is we can't embrace suffering as a blessing. And, and we can't be prepared to share about Jesus with other people with a heart like this. When Jesus is just part of our heart rather than all of it. And so if you've got a second picture, Isaiah, I want you to, I want you to see how Jesus, Jesus is supposed to be our heart. Now what we could do we could expand the word Jesus that fills up the entirety of that heart. And then what we could do is write in smaller letters, job, hobbies, family members, friends, um, other matters of concern. But what they would do is they would fall underneath the largeness of Jesus in your heart so that you don't negate your responsibilities as a husband or as a dad or as a wife or as a mom or as a worker, 
but Jesus dominates your heart and then therefore dominates that aspect of your life. So I think that's the idea when he says prepare your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. All right, the second thing he says, prepare your life. He says, everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Let me just kind of interpret that. You are to live such a life of robust faith in Jesus Christ. Your, your, your faith in Him, in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His bodily re- resurrection, His ascension into heaven and His future return, that people are in fact confused or perplexed by the kinds of decisions that you're making, the kind of life that you're living, and so they, they do ask questions, or at least they're puzzled, they're concerned. And they might not ask uh, verbally, but you can see it on their faces. Right? So, I do want to say this. Non-Christians aren't exactly going to come up to you and say, so Mark, I want you to explain to me this hope that you have within you. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I've never had anybody actually ask me that particular question. I haven't. But I have had people be perplexed. I have had, I've had, I've said things in conversations and people don't say anything back because they don't know what to say and you can, still, you can tell they're a little bit interested or they're a little bit intrigued or maybe they even disagree. I think the, the, the vein of Peter's message here is not wait until they ask you about the hope, but when you see people who are concerned, perplexed, antagonistic, whatever, take the opportunity to explain the hope that you have. That's the idea, all right? And so... You know, your coworker looks at you, and for whatever reason, your boss is constantly on your case, is constantly saying things that are negative about you, and puts more work on you than anybody else. And your coworker finally looks at you and says, How do you take all that? I would give him a piece of my mind. That is them asking you about the hope that lies within you. Okay, so let's let's remember those principles. All right? So your, your boss says, uh, this is a good boss. I just don't understand how you can deal with your sickness. How do you deal with the constant sickness of your children so that you can come to work and have this happy face and put in your time when all this is going on in your life? That's your boss asking you about the hope that lies within you. And we could give a myriad of different examples, but we need to understand that so we're ready to embrace it. So we need to live a life of hope. We need to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable before people. Prepare your attitude. Look at your attitude. He gives you kind of two characteristics of your attitude. It says, with meekness and fear, you are to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. This word meekness, it means gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness. All right, that's the idea. Um, Humility of life, this is a principle. Humility of life is just as important as boldness in speech. So if you're saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. I preach the gospel. I, I love the gospel. I'll preach it to, that, to that, that door over there. All right? But if you preach it in a way that is antagonistic, that is arrogant, that is proud, that is unloving, Peter would say, you're not doing what I'm instructing you to do. Love people with a humility. And then he says, do it with fear. All right? Now, there are multiple interpretations of what this fear means. Some people say it's having a fear of man. Some people say it's having a fear of God. I think it has more to do with a reverence. A reverence for the situation that you're in. 
So your boss talks to you, your coworker talks to you, your cousin talks to you at a family gathering and has asked you one of those questions that we talked about. What Peter wants you to do is understand the seriousness of the situation you're in right now. You don't blow it off as just another conversation. You don't think, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that's just, just what we do. But you understand that this might be the most important conversation that the person you're talking to will ever have in their whole life. There is a reverence for that. There is a fear in that. There is a respect for that kind of conversation. So we've got to prepare our attitude for it. And then finally, one of the four he says, you've got to prepare your speech. Prepare your speech. Always be prepared to give it offense. And y'all, this is a passage that um, evangelists and apologists for the faith use to launch into how you're to give a defense for the gospel, how you're to give a speech for the gospel or for the reality of God. And I think it would be worth us spending a Sunday just on that phrase alone. But essentially, he is saying, be ready to give a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a speech. He's not saying, if somebody asks you, hey, what about that hope that lies within you? He's not saying then you're supposed to just say, well, it's Jesus. That's, that's more. It's a speech in defense. All right? Go home and read Acts 26 this afternoon. Paul gives a speech in defense of the gospel in Acts 26. And what he does is he weaves God's truth from the Old Testament and the reality of the gospel in the New Testament and his own personal experience of not being a Christian and then being a Christian all into the speech of defense so that at the end of the speech, King Agrippa says, you're about to convince me to be a Christian, Paul. The king. And so we need to prepare ourselves to be able to give a defense for the gospel. And, and listen, it's not easy. If you've never shared the gospel with somebody, it's because for a lot of different reasons. But what God would say and what Peter would say is just work on your preparation. Begin to memorize passages in the Bible that are clearly gospel passages. Memorize passages about God, about man, about Jesus, and about salvation. You don't need a ton. You don't need 50 Maybe just two or three for me so that you can navigate a conversation about the four main aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can talk on and on about that today, but the reality is we've got to prepare our speech to be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. Finally today, I want to give you the last one. Prove your witness by your way of life. Prove your witness by your way of life. It says, having a good conscience... And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let me just say this. He's saying that you're going to have a good, con a good conscience because you have good conduct before unbelievers. That's the idea. Because, you know, there's nothing as hardly, you know, there may be some things, but there, there are hardly anything more joyful and more precious to know that you have represented Jesus Christ well before a world who hates him. It gives you a clearance. It gives you the ability to go to bed at night knowing that I represented Jesus well today. Now, at the same time, for me personally, there's nothing more plaguing in my life than to know that I misrepresented my Savior before a world that has the wrath of God upon their shoulders, that somehow I directed them away from Jesus rather than to him. And Peter is calling us right here in this passage. He said, I want you to have a good conscience 
I want you to have a clear conscience. I want you to be able to go to bed at night and lay your head down on your pillow because you have represented Christ well. Now what Peter would also say is, if you don't represent him well, you've been ugly to your sister, or you've said something really bad to your boss, there is forgiveness to be had in Jesus Christ. There is hope to be found in that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive um, you of your sins. And then you know what? You want to what else is more powerful? Going back to your sister, going back to your boss, and say, I just want you to know I blew it, and I hate what I did, but I've received forgiveness in Jesus, and I'm gonna, I've, I have committed myself to treat you better, to love you better, and I just want you to be able to see in me the kind of forgiveness and love that you can have in Christ as well. That can be powerful too. And so embrace your suffering as a blessing. Prepare yourself for witness and prove your witness by your way of life. Ronnie Smith did it and he lost his life because of it. Anita Smith is doing it now and who knows how God is going to use it. The question for us today is, are we going to embrace suffering as a blessing? Are we going to be prepared to give a witness for Jesus Christ? Are we going to have a clear conscience because we live for him? And if we do, let's be prepared for the glorious things that God is going to do through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.